listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo-Christian thought. I am Brendan, joined with by Sky, Scott, the Sky, yeah. this, this guy, this guy, yeah, this guy, S- the Sky, this guy, Sky, the guy, Sky. <laughs> you like to say guy a lot. Yes. Yeah. Not your father's that's name. That's my dad's name. Yeah, is that a thing? Like, is that a is that kind of a popular lingo thing right now? Because we had uh, this uh, some new people, friends that we'd met over last night, and they are so they're actually long story short, they're they're from North Carolina. Uh, looks like they could very well be moving out here, but um, yeah, they kept they kept saying, you know. Hey guy, <laughs> but like not to me. They were they were referring right. to their baby son, you know. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, like it just made me wonder, you know, because like maybe I'm really old now, but I refer to my son as bro, bro. Hey bro, yeah, you know. But maybe the I've new word is too. guy. Like hey guy, I typically say guy. Is it a thing? Like have you always said that, or is that a new thing you just picked up on because you're in on the new lingo somehow? Yeah. I don't know when it started, but yeah. it's not new. You sure about that? Entirely sure, no. Yeah. I, d- I mean, I'm I, always yeah. out of the loop. I have no idea. I used yeah. to be a youth pastor, and when I was a youth pastor, I knew the new phrases. I, I, I kept up with them. I never used them, yeah. but I knew them, you know? And uh, now I don't. Because the, fra- the, new, the new phrases change like every six to eight months. I don't know if you knew that. No, I don't. Yeah. So if it's you like don't know, to it. it is. Yeah. If you if you don't know what the new phrases are, then you just sound old. You date period. yourself. Yeah. Like if you're, like you know you're not part of youth culture <laughs> if you're still using a phrase from two years ago. You know. <laughs> yeah, so I, it makes me think of my dad. I can hear him in my head being like, "Wicked," you know. Yeah. Wicked. No, that's what I'm saying. I never like, hear that anymore. Dude, bro. I say dude. Man. I say man. But guy, you know, because yeah. this couple we had over, they're kind of, they're younger, you know, hip, still cool. <laughs> so when uh, I heard him saying guy, I was like, oh, maybe that's the new cool thing. Skyler's one of those cool people. I, I don't think I'm very cool, so yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> you use, maybe a, that's the coolest you thing use about some me. new phrases, you know, like you've you used the phrase triggered. That's an that's like a current phrase. That is a current like, one. You know? So you've got some new phrases. Yeah. Where uh, did I get that one? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You've got some connection to young youth hip <laughs> culture somewhere. I don't know where it's coming from. I, I don't either. <laughs> I don't I don't even know. It's like when I was a youth pastor, it took I think a good twenty minutes for my students to explain how to properly use the word lit. You know, I, what is that one? Or how to properly use the word fire. Fire? Yeah. It's like, like lit. It's like, I think lit was like the new cool, you know? Oh, that's lit. That's cool. Weird. You know? And fire is a phrase that you use, but at least what I was told is you typically only use it when like food is really good. You're like, oh, that's fire, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that one. Yeah. Well. So you're a mixture of old and new. It, yeah. But nobody uses those anymore. So I don't know what the new phrases are. Yeah. 
Maybe I could here. Let's see if I can let's figure find it out. out. Let's find out. Let's Google it. While I'm googling this, what are you doing this summer? You got any cool travel plans? None at all. Yeah, I hear you're heading somewhere. Yep, yep. Tra- we're driving across the nation. Okay. Um. And yeah, going all the way to Virginia. My wife's family is from Utah, so we're wow. literally driving across country with five children in tow and expensive gas. So, oh, man, have you been to Virginia before? I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Many times. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty. I mean, it's nice to see green cause we don't have as much green here. So, uh, last year I got to go, um, see Monticello. Yeah. That was pretty rad. Yep. That is cool. That's like right in the area where we're going. Oh, that's so like all that historical that stuff. Yeah. Is right, right there. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're in uh, Lynchburg. So Charlottesville is about an hour up the road, but yeah, yeah all of those, you know, there's tons of history there. Yeah. My friend and I, uh, we walked up this really cool street, a bunch of old coffee shops, book shops. I spent way too much money on books mm-hmm. and yet probably not enough. Cause one of the books I didn't buy, I cannot think of the author's name and I still want it. Yeah. Yeah. I still want it. I should have bought it. All right, here's your top slang words of 2023. You ready for this? Yes. Let's see how many of these we know. Bougie. Yeah, I've never heard it. You've never heard that one? I haven't heard it. Wow. Well, that makes me feel more hip than you. People yeah. call me bougie all the time. Bougie? Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean? Uh, so it's like rich, luxurious, like special, fancy. Is it? She, yeah. It's She's so bougie with that Louis Vuitton bag. That's the uh, proper usage. Wow. I get called bougie because of my particular love for coffee. So. I'm sure Marx would love yeah. that uh yeah. that that hip term. Yep. Here's another one, bussin'. Bussin'? Yeah, these these potato chips are bussin'. Uh, it means amazing, really good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if any of these they, are they inappropriate. Must, I they have must, no idea. Yeah. They, <laughs> <laughs> they must not be referred to like Greyhound bus. Oh like, that is All right, not here's bussin'. another one. Drip. Drip. Oh my gosh! You know this one? No. So uh, apparently, the, this the proper usage would be: Lee's shoes and belts are dripping today. <laughs> Stylish, sophisticated is what it means. Oh, I know this one. Extra. I hear that one a lot. Extra. Yeah. yeah you don't have to be so extra about it. it. Means like being really dramatic. I'm very extra. Yeah. You're you're extra. I'm very. You're a little extra today. Extra. Aren't you? Yeah. 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 Uh, let's see here. Rent free. Rent-free is another one. Yeah. Okay. Some Somebody's living rent-free inside my head. It means like yeah. you can't stop thinking about it. can't stop it. thinking it's about like it. It's like an obsession. Is yeah. it a positive or negative? Uh, it seems negative. Okay. It seems negative, yeah. But, yeah, see, see, I don't know, maybe neutral. Maybe neutral. Maybe it could be used yeah. in both ways. Salty, that's another one. Okay, I've, I've heard, heard that one I've a lot. I've heard that one. Yeah, you got so salty. Yeah, I'm that too. Overreacting. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm overreacting, but maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Shook. Shook is another one. Shook. Yeah. And that's got me shook. Like uh, emotional? Stunned. Oh, Shocked. Okay. okay. Yeah. Vibe check. Vi- Vibes is big. Like vibe, we hear everybody. Yeah. But, but yeah. vibe check is to make sure someone is having a good time. <laughs> so vibe check. <laughs> Check. Yeah. Hey, Skyler. Vibe check. <laughs> oh boy. All good. Oh yeah. 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 
And then the last one they say is woke. Yeah. We know that we one's know popular. That. We know that one, yeah. <laughs> Socially conscious. Yeah. yeah. Culturally aware. There's no bias to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's all we got. There's a bunch of other ones, but those are the top ten. Yeah. So there you go. Well, I am behind then. Yeah. Because I use guy. I don't use any of these regularly. I mean, I use bougie every once in a while, but I don't use any of the other ones. Salty, vibe check, rent free. Could you use all 10 in one sentence right away? Or in this one episode. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, Maybe that'd be the goal. What was the drip one? Uh, drip is stylish, okay, sophisticated clothes or appearance. It's not dripping. Yeah. It's, yeah. Oh, it's dripping? Well, no, it's just drip or, okay. or dripping. You, I guess you could use it dripping, dripping, you know. So, okay. so we might say when, you know, Joseph Smith was sent his lieutenant general uniform, he was dripping, man. He was uh, he was looking drip every day when he was marching in front of his militia. Yeah, yeah. with his top hat with yep. the magic stone yep. while he was translating yep. languages that don't exist and civilizations that never did. And yep. that's pretty dripping. That's right. That's right. It's he just, got away with it. It's dripping. He got away with it's it. Like, like our our uh, other pastor, one of our other pastors here, uh, became a realtor, and man, <laughs> he's just been dripping lately. He's been like, <laughs> he just. See, like the the phrase in my day would have been "fly." He's looking fly, fly. you know. Okay. But but no, now it's dripping. He's there's drip right there. Okay, I'm feeling a little extra right now. If you know what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Got you know a lot of LDS stuffs been living rent free <laughs> inside my my head. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh, this has got me shook. All right, <sighs> you're, you're winning. If the listeners are paying attention. Listeners, give us a vibe check. Yeah. How are we doing today? <laughs> Not so great. But anyways, all right. We're wasting our time here. Let's get yeah, into the material. All right. All right we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew 21 to 23. Well, I, let me just, we're, we're not going to be looking at all these, but I'll just read the, the scriptures that they encourage everybody to be reading for this week in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum. And so the curriculum that we're looking at would have been for the dates May 15th to the 21st, 2023. And the scriptures that were encouraged to be read are Matthew 21 to 23, Mark 11, Luke 19 to 20, and John 12. All right, as we get into the curriculum, the title they give for the whole thing is Behold, Thy King Cometh. And there is a little bit of talk here on Jesus as King, and we will get into that here in just a bit. But per usual, they encourage the teacher to read these texts and look for principles. We see that principles language coming again, uh, which, you know, we've talked about that in previous episodes, so go back and listen to that. But, of course, the other point here that's interesting is they say the Holy Ghost will inspire you to know how to help class members discover those principles. Just a quick reminder of the difference between the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit there, Skylar. Yeah, Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead in one place at one time. Um, and then, of course, the standard LDS view is not a body yet. And the Holy Spirit is kind of the what force the, the, power, the power of the sun and the light and the laws of nature and yeah it's in and all through all things and and so yeah there's actually a very clear distinction yep uh yep yeah. and and then again uh always they're inviting 
everyone to share. And this one, we see this similar language again, which we've talked about over and over. Invite a few class members to come in, come to class prepared to share, not something that they learned from a knowledge standpoint. Mm-mm. No, come share an experience they had while studying. While this studying, week's assigned chapters. What's the purpose of studying? That would be my so question. These experiences. Yeah, yeah. So it's not any knowledge content. It's what the text does yeah. aesthetically yep. to the subjective conscience of the LDS member. Yep, for sure. Okay, so the text that we're covering in the lesson uh, begin with Luke 19, 1-10, which is the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You know that one? I don't. Yeah. You know that song? You don't know that song? I'm, I'm not Zacchaeus bougie enough. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Yeah, I don't know that wee one. Wee little man was he. <laughs> it's because you didn't grow up in the Bible Belt South going to church. The, the right. Southern Baptist Church. Nope. Yep. Nope. That's right. Not at all. You missed out on real art and... Powerful, passionate songs. Sounds extra. Really just, yeah, it's definitely extra. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the, the of course, the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and was, of course, as a tax collector, a notoriously sinful, hated man. And um, the, uh, the story goes, Jesus comes into town. Zacchaeus is short and can't see. Uh, Jesus, but wants to see Jesus, desires to see Jesus. So he climbs up into a sycamore tree so that he can get a visual of Jesus. Jesus sees him in the tree, says, come down, I want to eat at your house today. And uh, just kind of shocks the whole crowd that Jesus would invite this notorious tax collector um, to have a meal with him. And uh, so that's the, the story in Luke 19. The lesson here is the Savior knows us personally. That's the subtitle in the Come Follow Me curriculum. And uh, just kind of say your class members have likely felt overlooked or forgotten at times in their lives. The account of Zacchaeus can help them understand that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ know them and care about them. To help class members liken this account to their lives, invite them to imagine themselves as Zacchaeus. What do you think he learned about the Savior from this experience? Uh, so there's the typical pattern of how do you relate to this biblical character. Yeah. Uh, it's not really asking what is the uh, author Luke intending to convey the way that we would approach the text, right? But uh, instead it's just what are these moral lessons? How does this relate to a way that you felt before? Experience. Things like that. Experiences. Yeah. Yep. And then the next one actually pulls accounts from all four Gospels. Matthew 21, 1 to 11, Mark 11, 1 to 11, Luke 19, 29 to 44, and John 12, 12 to 16. And all of those are the record of the triumphal entry. So, of course, that's the account of Jesus during the last week of his life and ministry entering into Jerusalem, and uh, huge crowds gather, uh, perhaps not just tremendously massive because it doesn't seem like it caused enough of a disturbance for the Roman Empire to care a whole lot at that point in time. But certainly there was a pretty big draw to Jesus entering the city. And so he, of course, comes in on the donkey and everybody lays the palm leaves in front of him. And uh, yeah, so here is the subtitle in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum for that account. And this is just fascinating. Jesus Christ is our king. All right. We're going to take them to task on that one. So 
you know, hold your horses or hold your donkeys and let's see yes. where we where we go. Because when we read that Jesus Christ is our king, that is absolutely something an evangelical Christian can say in good conscience and mean it. But can an LDS person really say Jesus Christ is our king? Our king. Uh, we, we'll, we'll get there. All right, then the next subtitle uh, is, well, the, the text is covering Matthew 22, 34 to 40, and that's the account of a lawyer coming to Jesus. And, of course, there's lots of Pharisees and lawyers in this section of Scripture that have been questioning Jesus to try to put him to shame or embarrass him or discredit him. And this is the particular moment when a lawyer comes and asks which commandment is the most important commandment. Of course, that would have been a topic that was debated among religious people in that day. And uh, if you remember, Jesus uh, really quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and uh, Leviticus 19, kind of puts them together and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the great commandments. Um so the subtitle here is the two great commandments are to love God and love others as ourselves. And it goes on to say, how can you help class members understand on these two commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor, hang all the law and the prophets. After reading these verses together, you could write love God and love your neighbor on the board, give each class member a slip of paper with a commandment written on it, invite a few of them to read their commandment and talk about how their commandment helps us obey one or both of these two great commandments. After they discuss their commandment, they could put their paper on the board. Why is it important to remember that all the commandments relate to the two great commandments? So we're going to get into that text and look at some different interpretation on that from an LDS perspective and then give give our view on it as well. And then the last section is covering Matthew 23, 13 to 33. If you don't know Matthew 23, that is as a powerful passage of Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, over and over again. And one of the rebukes that he gives to them is you are blind guides, is what he says. So uh, this LDS Come Follow Me curriculum has in the subtitle, We will be protected as we uh, as we avoid following blind guides. And what's interesting is there's not a whole lot given in terms of what a blind guide is, right? Um, yeah. It's just kind of left ambiguous and obscure. How, how are you supposed to look out for blind guides? Who are the blind guides? Who, who are the, the Pharisees of our current day? Who are the scribes of our current day? And uh, how would you know um, whether or not they're there? So it's interesting because they don't really give you any guidance on that at all. You're just supposed to discuss it, I guess. Um, does say you, you might think of a way to demonstrate what it would be like for someone to follow a person who can't see. Okay, but how do we know who the people who can't see are, right? Right. Uh, there's By not what a, standard? Yeah, not, not very much help that's given there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And then the additional resources go back to the loving God and loving our neighbors and uh, gives a quote from President uh, Russell Ballard, and uh, anyways, we'll we, we may touch on that a little bit as well. So that's where we're going. That's what the curriculum has given us this week, and uh, let's go back and start with. Shall we start with Zacchaeus? Yeah, just really quick. I yeah. just have a couple things yeah, we, here. Not this as is, much on this one, but no, yeah. no. In fact, uh, it, it's kind of weird in the seminary manual. They don't even spend a day on this one. Um, so, but David Ridges, I thought, um, made some interesting comments on this passage. 
Um, he, of course, frames it with Zacchaeus being uh, deeply good. That, that's how... It's an interesting way of putting it, right? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, where Jesus says, I must stay at your house, uh, this is a comment implying that he himself, the creator of heaven and earth, and I just want to say David Regis, organizer of some heavens and this earth, uh, had a very strong desire to stay with this humble man and reassure him of his worth to God. Yeah. That's, that's his comment. Verse 9, the covenantal point about the son of Abraham, an interesting comment from Jesus. Um, this is his comment. It can also mean that Zacchaeus is righteous and honest, like Abraham was, and thus will be saved. Mm-hmm. All right, because there's no stories in Genesis about, you know, Abraham, I don't know, lying. Yeah. Like, you know, about his wife. To, oh, wait, but Joseph Smith fixed that. I forgot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph I, I Smith. Don't, oh, I don't recall Abraham uh, ever, you know, take, <laughs> taking his slaves as his uh, wives or yeah, you know, anything like nothing. that either. No. And when Joseph Smith, uh, quote unquote, fixed it, he has God command Abraham to lie. Yeah. So who's the real liar? Yeah. God. Wow. Yeah. 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 And the Bible says elsewhere, God cannot, cannot lie. lie. Right. But uh, interesting, you can see the priorities mm. of this system. Yeah, so that's okay. what I got on that. Boy, one. there's got to be a word <laughs> for that. We we were just very sassy. I don't know if that's a current. Slang yeah, term I, or not. I'm shook. Yeah, it's got you shook. I'm shook. By you need this. to chill, bro. Yeah, I need to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Vibe check. How many How many listeners have wanted to say that to me, like throughout uh, this year? I mean, it was chill, a, bro. Yeah, it was a little extra, Skyler. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm just yeah, I really thought that was busting. There's There's literally a video. Sorry, just going along with that. It's not just Joseph Smith, though. That's bad enough. Um, it's It's Jeff Holland. And um, his son, I think, used to be president of UVU. And they're in southern Utah, and they go on a hike all day, right? This is the story. And then they're coming back, and they hit this crossroads, and they can't remember which way to turn, right? So here, you know, Holland's a general authority, and his son, they're like, well, let's pray about it, right? And they get the impression or whatever to go one way. But then it turns out to be the wrong way. Hmm. Right, so his son asked, "Well, wait. If we had such a strong impression about it being the wrong way, like how how does that work?" He said, "Well, God wanted us to go the wrong way so that we absolutely knew which way was right." Mm. Ah, see. Mm. So once again, it's not Holland saying, "Well, well maybe our feelings are wrong." Wow. Yeah, because those can't be wrong, but wow. God can. Yeah. <laughs> well, God sure yeah. can be wrong. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, maybe just some really quick notes on. <clears throat> On this particular passage, um, God God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners yes. who, who don't deserve salvation. And yeah. so there's story after story of Jesus drawing the sinners to himself. So when you're trying to say, you know, Zacchaeus was really a good guy, right? He was really a great guy. That That is not the point the Bible's making at all. The, the point that the Bible is making is that Jesus was coming to save the most wicked of men. Yep. You know, he, he was coming to save the people who knew that they were not favored by the people who then considered themselves to be the people of God, which were, of course, the Jewish people. So tax collectors, I know many of our listeners are already be familiar with some of these details, but tax collectors were greedy, selfish, rich, hated men because they would 
overtax the people locally so that they could keep a large portion for themselves and then send off whatever was whatever was due to the Roman Empire. Um, and so tax collectors would uh, notoriously uh, overcharge people and forcefully do so and uh, and even had enough of the weight of the law behind them that, that the people were obligated to pay. Um, and so Zacchaeus was a man who got rich off of taking advantage of the vulnerable, taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of people who could not take care of themselves. And so, you know, if, if you would have been living in that day, um, you would have known tax collectors were the greatest oppressors that there are, you know, in, in a, on a local level. And so it would have been offensive to try to say, you know, he was really a good person. You know, I mean, not a Jew in, in the world was thinking that unless it was a fellow tax collector. And I was like, yeah. well, you know, you're just you're just getting what was OD or something like that. I don't know. So, yeah, the whole, the whole purpose of the story is to show that Jesus is in a very radical sense drawing near to these tax collectors, sinners. And especially in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is showing that many of the Jews who you would have expected to receive Jesus have rejected him because Luke is writing to a primarily Gentile audience and, and Theophilus and, uh, and other Greeks. And so he, Luke is trying to encourage these people who are not of Jewish origin. He's trying to encourage them. God came to save people just like you, uh, people who are far away from God, people who uh, it seems you would never expect to be found in the kingdom uh, that's who God is drawing to himself. And look at how Jesus set this example and showed us this in the way that he lived his life, right? So uh, anyways, I don't know if you want to make any other comments yeah, on that just or just move the, on. But. The scandal of the grace of God, right? Yeah. He says, I must stay at your house. And then, yeah, how, do you, how does David Ridges understand the last verse? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's right. That's the takeaway. Yep, that's right. Not he came to hang out with somebody he really liked and wanted to reassure him that God really values him, you know, really needs him. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. For sure. All right. Let's get to the triumphal entry because we, we've got a little more on this particular section. So, yes. Um, yeah. So the, the claim that's made in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum for the triumphal entry is that Jesus Christ is our King. All of the gospels record this account, uh, but Basically, well, let me just read it. I mean, we got 11 verses here in Matthew. Might as well just read the account, right? Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them back to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he said, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and, and that followed him here, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, take it away, Skylar. What you got on this one? 
Well, um, by king, do they mean king? Yeah. Um, when Brigham Young uh, said this, that um, um, I am at war with evil principles and I shall contend against them and continue to do so until I see the kingdoms of this world bow to the scepter of King Emmanuel. Sound good, right? Will any man be deprived of his rights when that is the case? No, but they will find it a Republican Democratic government. <laughs> but we thought that the government you were talking about was a theocratic government. It is. And it is the only true form of government on earth, the only one that possesses all the true principles of republicanism. It puts every man and woman right, puts everything in its place, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, you know, a lot of people will be familiar with the talk of theodemocracy uh, with Joseph Smith. Um, the Doctrine and Covenants says that the U.S. Constitution is basically inspired of God, anything more or less than it is evil in D&C 98. Um, and so I think this is something that you might come across online. Um, <laughs> they're, they're pretty loud, but the, the emphasis on agency comes through politically and has from almost the very beginning in Mormonism. Yeah. And I mean, they, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, you can find quotes from general conference where they will say the constitution is as much from God as the law of Moses. Yep. Right. And just constitution, constitution. I mean, like it's inspired. Right. And even if there's a way to make it better because of the more or less thing, right. Mm -hmm. They'll say, no, that's, that's evil. But I guess the three fifths compromise is inspired of God. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, <laughs> I think it's hard for people to understand the the individualism there will lead if there's any difference you'll encounter online it'll be people who go uh this kind of libertarian anarchist uh so they're even righteous they're even more pure than ezra taft benson yeah or who was a president of the church that emphasized the constitution his whole career of course almost ran for president with the segregationist should be said mm -hmm. Um, it's funny. It's pretty easy to be conservative politically when you're in power. We might get to that later with the Sadducees. Right. Um, and that's not to say I'm on the left at all. Yeah. What I'm saying is that that is of the Achilles heel of a blind traditionalism. Right. But yeah, I think it's just understated there. I mean, often even with Brigham Young, right. He's like the constitution is inspired of God. It's just right. the government we hate. Yeah. You know, it's. <laughs> Yeah. So there, it's not just that Mormons happen to be this. Mm -hmm. It's that there's a theological underpinning, and it's shared by all sides politically. Mm -hmm. It just comes through differently. So, for example, with the Benson Scousenites, their libertarian sense of agency and individualism makes them see basically any law that protects this kind of supposedly neutral view of natural rights is understood by you know, John Locke himself or whatever. Yeah. Murray Rothbard or whatever. Um, and then you're going to have it come through on the left with something like identity politics where, oh, agency, they should be able to identify however they want. Mm -hmm. And you see what I'm saying? That, right. that that individualism will come through differently, but it's there throughout any form of Mormon politics. Yep. Um, and, you know, even the arguments against the Constitution will be it's not radical enough, whether that's in a more uh, progressive direction or a more mm. uh, conservative direction. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know, not 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 to make this into a political talk show. That's not the point all right. at all. But but uh, Jonathan Lehman wrote a book titled "How the Nations Rage," and hmm. 
in that book, which I don't know, do you know, uh, Jonathan Liebman, if listeners don't know, um, he's an exceptional theologian, pastor, uh, and he's actually an editor for a ministry called Nine Marks, and, uh, you know, has done a lot of theological work, but he also has a PhD in political science, so it's just fascinating book, and he's pastored in uh, Washington, D.C. for most of his whole life, so... Um, so he's actually been in churches where he's had senators and whatnot trying to ask his opinion on things like, oh, I can't really, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want to yeah. like bit binge it too much. And, but, but in the book, he's making the argument that a uh, democratic Republic, um, is only beneficial when the people as a majority agree on a moral standard that is good according to God's law. And he's not a theonomist at all, so don't get right. that idea whatsoever. But um, the point he's making is we're so uh, hook, line, and sinker sold, many people are anyways, on this idea of a democratic republic being the highest good. And he's like, well, what about when the majority of the people are utterly wicked and evil and, uh, you know, want want nothing to do with anything that is good or just or right or true. Yeah. What, what then, you know? Right. And so it, it's an important question to, to think about. Right. Yeah. But, um, in any case to take your particular, uh, political preferences and insert them into your religion and your expectation of what the future is going to look like is the wrong direction to work things. Um, so yeah, I mean, the question does become, is Jesus really king? You know, you say yeah. Jesus Christ is king. Well, what do you mean by that? Uh, from an LDS perspective, are we, are we going to be living in a democratic republic uh, right. forever? Right, as autonomous uh, agents right, who get to use our agency how we will, and the king can't violate that? Yep. I mean, yep. that's, that's how they interpret it. I mean, yeah. uh, this isn't even just, how about this from John Taylor to get more of the sense, John Taylor, who's a third president of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he was involved in Joseph Smith's run for pre- the president of the United States. Uh, he said, I would not be a slave to God. I'd be a servant, friend, his son. I'd go at his behest, but would not be a slave. His friend, I feel I am. <laughs> His friend, I feel I am. I'm God's free man. I will not, cannot be a slave. Mm-hmm. Living, I'll be free here, free in the life above, free with the gods, for they are free. That's uh, John Taylor. Um, see the libertarianism? Yeah. Whereas, how does Paul identify himself in the first line of several epistles? I am the slave of Christ Jesus. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, that's pulling on how a lot of the prophets identified themselves, but instead of the Lord, Tetragrammaton, yep. Yahweh, yep. it's Christ Jesus yep. showing the identity there. But uh, yeah, it, I just don't think it's there. Yeah. Uh, if agency is some like cosmic right, and it, it, there's like a basically a natural law of a cosmos that you mm. can decry against any god, yeah. um, I mean, that that's not what we mean when we say yeah. king. And, and it's surely not. I mean, <laughs> once again, the founding fathers... There is a cult of the founding fathers of the Mormon community. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it may not be the mainstream anymore because even in my lifetime, there's been a shift from Benson to even Oaks. Um, though they want to throw some red meat toward the Bensonites, keep them in the church, but you know, it, it's not the mainstream view anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they they really believe that the founding fathers were inspired of God. Yeah to create a new Israel. Yep. 
And you will have people running for office in Utah who are LDS yep. who literally believe America had a covenant and yeah. the covenant is the constitution and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Now, you wouldn't think that there's any anti-monarchical way of thinking in America in the early <laughs> 1800s, would you? That's not uh, yeah. something that was... <laughs> yeah, well, there you yeah. go. I mean, like for us, like the form of government... Uh, I don't know how a Christian could not include monarchy as a possibility. Yeah. Not just in the eschaton with Christ or yeah. really Christ now. He's, he rules yeah. now is our view. But, yeah. um, but I mean, this is why it's kind of funny. So John Locke, right, he wrote commentaries on the epistles. Mm-hmm. Um, and on Romans 13, right, he says, well, you know, Paul didn't have republicanism in mind, but that's why he's wrong. Yeah. Right. But yeah. that that's more inspired than Paul. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, it's just hard to get culturally. And once again, I don't want people to hear me say like that I think of myself as very conservative politically. Mm-hmm. I think the Constitution is the law of our land. and But it's not a freaking inspired document. Yeah. Like, it's, it, it, I mean, literally, you will have people in this community, our neighbors, right? We probably vote similarly to them yeah. in terms of pattern, right? Yep. But they will study the Constitution like in context, looking at terms with the language, with the 1830 Webster dictionary, yeah. but they won't do that with the Bible. Mm-hmm. They won't do that with the Bible. They will treat the Constitution as more inspired than the Bible. Yeah, yep. That's 180 wrong. Oh yeah. And the Constitution, I, I just to me, it's just like it, it's weird. Like it's one thing to admire it historically or its importance. It's another thing to treat it like an idol. Yeah. And I would just say, as we've been working through this curriculum, truly at no point has there been anything said about Jesus that would make you actually make a connection that he is our king. Right. You know, like everything that has been in the LDS curriculum has been more of the Jesus is a sympathetic older brother sort of a thing, right? Yeah. Um, he's a little further progressed than we are. Eventually, we'll we'll get there as well. Um, to say Jesus Christ is our is our King is an audacious statement from an LDS perspective because right. because of their views of agency. I right. mean, who do you ultimately ever submit to um, that that would be considered a higher authority than yourself from an eternal perspective? Um, you know, everything is bent towards this self progression and eventually getting to a level of exaltation where you will not be submitting to anything except for this obscure divine law that's outside of yourself, right? And then and then you're not really submitting to any person at that point um, except for yourself and whatever that divine law is. Um, now, let's take this back from a historical perspective and ask, what is a king, yeah. right? Yeah. A king is an absolute authority. They're the sovereign. You're the they subject. They're the sovereign, right? Yeah. So... so how would have a, a, a Jew understood kingship? Well, let me just read Psalm 24 for you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. By the way, the earth is Yahweh's, uh, yeah. is the word there, in the fullness thereof. So everything belongs to the Lord, everything. The world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He created it. He founded it. He established it. It's all his. Who shall, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. We've been watching uh, this little... I'm going to mention the show because wouldn't necessarily endorse it to every human being on this planet, but we've been watching the show that's, you know, um, uh, takes place in early 20th century Britain, very popular show. And one of the particular episodes includes the king coming to visit um, this Earl at his home. And they pull out all of the stops, man, to honor the king. And when the king comes into town, it's like every citizen not only wants to see him in in, uh, in kind of just a, a fearful way, but there's a love for the king. There's an honor for the king. There's a respect for the king. And if we think that that was uh, still really preserved to a, a great degree in the 20th century in uh, Great Britain, how much more in the ancient world? How much more in the Roman Empire, where there was literally emperor worship going on because there was so much honor being turned towards this one singular man? Um, And so make no mistake, when a Jew thought about the king, what they're thinking about in an ultimate sense is Yahweh is king. He is the king of glory. And whenever they say king, they mean everyone is subject to him, is under him, he is the sovereign. He's in control. You're not a free agent in his world. You, no. you can't do whatever you want to do in the king's world. He is the one who gets to determine uh, all that occurs. And so, yes, we would say Jesus Christ is our king. But can an LDS person really say that from the heart? I submit myself to Jesus in every way. I bow my knee to Jesus in every way. I pay my respect, my honor, my my glory, my my, my due to the king. Um, no way, no, no way. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just pretty different. Yeah. It's just very different. And, uh, man, there's so many directions I could go here, but I know we got more to get to, but here's kind of the example of where it can lead these kind of weird positions. Uh, So was Thomas Jefferson a Christian? No. Right. If by Christian, we mean, Right, the Orthodox faith is revealed in the scriptures, but mm-hmm. when he can write to even one of his, you know, a letter saying the virgin birth is like the birth of Zeus from Minerva or something mm-hmm. like that, no, that doesn't sound very Christian, right? But they will say, well, he denied the Trinity and so do we. So they, they, they start to involve their identity into this historical question, right? Right. So, yeah. so it's, it's just. Or they'll define Christian in such a loose way that mm-hmm. it doesn't even matter, right? But once again, they deny the virgin birth. So, yeah. Uh, so it's that it can lead to just weird kind of. It, it's not Christian nationalism. It's like a Mormon nationalism that can overlap with what we'd identify as a Christian nationalism, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it can just lead to some pretty weird 
places, right? Yep. In terms of the king, right? Yeah. Compare Psalm 24 to Thomas Paine's common sense, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's not the same. But one, which is more conducive to LDS theology? Thomas Paine's common sense. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what we're dealing with here. Right, mm-hmm. I mean, this idea that you know, you know, the only thing that's king in America is the law. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. That utopianism, that New Eden, that you know, and um, it's 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 just weird. It's an appropriation of Christian categories for political purposes. Yeah, it's what it is, and um, it should be called out. Um, and I, once again. Um, it's, you know, the historical question is more interesting to me, but I mean, we're dealing with this now mm-hmm. in ways that I, I bet many of the listeners will now start to even recognize even more mm-hmm. on social media and other places. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's jump to Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Yeah. And this is the great commandment. So let me just read these verses for you because it's not too long. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What do you got for us on this one? Well, I maybe if we have time, we'll come back to it. They they skipped a part in Matthew uh, mm-hmm. twenty two. <laughs> yeah. So there's three questions, right? Um, one is paying taxes to Caesar, and then it's our passage here that they have to ignore about there being no marriage in heaven. Yep. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that. Now we're on to the third one. And here there is a lot of, um, I mean, they they see this. Well, first off, the, their framing is kind of weird. Like, here's advice. Once again, kind of like the rich young ruler, right? Um, here's the simple, apparently even gospels, how they'll talk about it. Um and, it, I mean, like here, just from the sem- uh, seminary manual, this lesson can help you understand how to live these two great commandments. Now, listen to this section for the teachers. Helping students feel the truth and importance of doctrine and principles. What about the text? What about, no. Mm-hmm. Students are more likely to apply the truths in the Scripture when they feel their importance and sense some urgency to incorporate them into their lives. One way to help students do this is to encourage them to reflect on how the truths are relevant in their lives and show personal experiences related to these truths. It's not the scripture determines its own relevance and we submit to it. It's constantly twisting it to make it relevant to them Mm -hmm. based on how they feel, not how they think, how they feel. Well, it shows, at least they are consistent with that. Um, it, once again, the great commandments, helping them see how the two great commandments can help us become like the Savior. Well, Jesus is, a, is an example, and certainly not the God he's referring to. And this does tie to the king point as well, right? You'd think if your Godhead is three separate beings and persons, yeah. why do they say Jesus is the king and not heavenly father? Yep. He's even more exalted, right? Mm-hmm. Well, similarly here, 
They never once make the point. I'm shook here. I'm shook. Mm. They never once make the point that Jesus is God. He is the one God that we worship. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. They'll even cite De- Deuteronomy 6.5. What about 6.4? Yeah. And this is where, um, this is so bizarre. At the very bottom, they have this, using other gospel accounts, consider watching the account of the Savior teaching the great commandments from Mark 12. Um, the Mark 12 version starts where Matthew and Luke assume, right, uh, with Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, mm-hmm. with the affirmation of monotheism. Yeah. Um, and they literally say, this will help you better understand the Savior's words. And then they uh, have a video, um, and I actually watched it. Brendan knows. I don't believe oh, in pictures or videos of Jesus video, at man. all. Yeah, yeah. I totally reject pictures, videos of Jesus. But I watched this one. Stick your pinky in front of yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, yeah. To... Seriously. It's like, oh, my goodness. Um, but they, they include the Mark version. They include the Shema. Uh, it's unbelievable. It, so there's only one God. And we affirm Jesus as God, so there's one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Interesting, we had to wait for the conspiracy of Constantine to impose it on the church or whatever, mm-hmm. but no, it's there. Yeah. And once again, why does it matter? Well, first off, it's the truth. It's what God has revealed about himself primarily. Yeah. But second, when you love God, what God? That's right. I mean, the, the second commandment is like unto it, and if you focus so much on that, you miss... I mean, what if Krishna's that God? What if yeah. Zeus is that yeah. God? Uh, Especially if, when the command is with all your heart, yeah. soul, mind, and strength. So am I supposed to give all of my heart to Heavenly Father or Jesus or the yep. Holy Ghost? Yep. I don't know which one. Yep. You know, rock, paper, scissors. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel? Or Heavenly Mother, don't forget that. Yeah. Or Mary Magdalene for some out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or Joseph Smith, if you're fundamentalist, um, believe Joseph Smith was the Holy Ghost. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's all about how can obeying these two great commandments help us become like Jesus Christ? Uh, and it's once again obedience, obedience, obedience. Here's uh, Nelson: When we love God with all our hearts, once again singular. At least John Taylor was willing to say the plural because mm-hmm. he understood. Mormonism and wanted the words to match the concepts. Yep. But here, when we love God with all our hearts, he turns our hearts to the well-being of others in beautiful, virtuous cycle. Notice that. When we love God with all our hearts, then he turns our hearts to the well-being of others. Hmm. So you got to do that first. Yeah. Because that's possible, right? Yep. Post-fall. Yeah. I mean, surely you you love with like all your heart. Yeah. You've, you've never been tempted to... Embrace a false love of something Never. other than God, right? You've you've <laughs> always chosen God over idols, and yeah, my goodness, you know, it uh, it's the yeah. the self righteousness here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I I to me, it's also it's so crazy they don't even go out of their way to address it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and keep in mind also the heart in the ancient world, right? We've said this before. It's not just the seed of emotion. These are not yeah. romantics from the 1800s, late 1700s. Yep. Yeah, it, I mean, you think with your heart in the That's ancient right. world. So you, what you think about God matters? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what does God reveal about himself? I'm one. Not the yeah. first God, not the likable God, not the most important. I'm the one. That's right. The one. In the beginning, God. 
and no, it, it, they'll it literally even make a video of Jesus saying that. Yeah. But because you're, it's all about feelings and not about thinking, it's all about you rather than about God, it's all about the general authorities rather than about the real prophets and apostles, It it's not even stated in terms of trying to rebut it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is essential that uh, you, you have the right God in order to know that you're loving the right God um, and not something else or someone else or whatever with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's bring in some Augustine here, shall we? Please. So this is uh, Augustine on Christian doctrine, and he's making a comment on this greatest commandment. This is chapter 27, and he says this, Now he is a man of just and holy life, who forms an unprejudiced estimate of things and keeps his affections also under strict control so that he neither loves what he ought not to love. It's really important that you love, you you don't love what you ought not to love, nor fails to love what he ought to love, nor loves that more which ought to be loved less, nor loves that equally which ought to be loved either less or more nor loves that less or more, which ought to be loved equally. Now listen to this. No sinner is to be loved as a sinner. And every man is to be loved as a man for God's sake. But God is to be loved for his own sake. And if God is to be loved more than any man, Each man ought to love God more than himself, because you're a man, so you better not love love yourself more than you love God. Likewise, we ought to love another man better than our own body, because all things are to be loved in reference to God. And another man can have fellowship with us in the enjoyment of God, whereas our body cannot. And for the body only lives through the soul, and it is by the soul that we enjoy God. Here's what Augustine understood. Everything we love is only loved rightly if it's loved in reference to God. And so if we are not loving God in the true sense, loving the right God um, even, then we're not loving truly in the way that we ought to be loving. And so you're not in obedience to this commandment unless you have the right reference to God, right? If you've got the wrong God, you're in abject disobedience to this commandment because you're actually loving something else with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength than the one and only true God. And so who's the God of the scriptures, and are you loving him? Right. Right? That's the question. Who's the the God who's been revealed? Yep. You know. And if you're not a monotheistic faith, you have no chance of being right. Yeah, that's right. I'm not making a minimalist argument in total. Singular. I'm saying God is one. Yep. That narrows down the options quite a bit historically. Yep. That's right. That's right. (laughs) What Sikhs, Muslims, Jews, Christians. That's it. Anything else, and that includes Mormonism. Yep. You don't even have a chance being right. Yep. Because once again, it's not just oh, here's a pantheon of million gods, of three hundred million gods, but I really like Krishna, and I'm going to worship that god with all. No, 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 no. 
what caused that God? Mm-hmm. What, what, what makes that God special? Just what you like? See, if it's anything but the one God who makes himself relevant in his word, yeah. then it's you who determines by what you feel and think what makes God a God yep. rather than himself. Yeah. Now this is yeah. Now this is really important too because uh, in our modern day, we were talking about this some before, you know, we came on the air. But in our modern day, I think this is probably one of the most quoted scriptures by atheists, agnostics, Christians. You know, the left, the right. You know, I think it's particularly been uh, militarized by people on on the left. Yeah, um, that's love true. your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Right. This this has kind of become the the catch all phrase for promoting a particular agenda within the public sphere. Um, and what we're trying to make clear is, you can't love your neighbor unless you are loving God. The 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 two have to come together because you're not going to ever love your neighbor rightly if it is not done in accordance with and and unto the one and only true God. So it's fascinating because even in Leviticus 19, when that that whole chapter is laying out for the Jews, the Israelites, what neighbor love is. And in that chapter, it will give a a particular command and, uh, and then it will say, for I am Yahweh. And, and Yahweh says that over and over again. So he gives a command of what neighbor love is. And he says, yeah. for I am Yahweh, for I am Yahweh, for I am Yahweh, yep. for I am Yahweh. So every command is given from and in accordance to the character, the nature, the person of Yahweh. And so unless you are doing the act of the neighbor love unto the glory of Yahweh, uh, unless you're doing it unto the love of him, you're not doing the neighbor love that's required in the Bible. So it's right. not just these abstract good deeds that we do that we define as being the kind of neighbor love and obedience to that particular command that we want it to be just because it fits our agenda. No, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is a love that is only possible for one who is rightly oriented to Yahweh. Right. Yeah. If there's not one God who made all things, that shifts our who our neighbor really is. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, of all the thinkers, even Rousseau saw this, that the 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 growth of Christianity changed even how we do war with people mm-hmm. because we saw that they're made in the image of likeness of God like we are. That's not how war in the ancient world occurred. Yeah. That is not the norm, right? There is a distinction... <laughs> that's not just covenantal. It's a distinction that's qualitative in the ancient mind. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's Greeks over this or Turks over that or Persians over this, it's, that's not how it works. And that's rooted in the monotheism we believe in. Yeah. (laughs) Um, To show how, and another thing too, you're right. The love of God is unqualified and the love of neighbor is once again, showing the priority. But listen to this, how the polytheism creeps in here. Uh, this is in the manual. How did the two great commandments work together? This is to Elder Peter M. Johnson. He says, remember that the first and great commandment is to love God with our heart, might, mind, and strength. All that we do should be motivated by our love for him and his son. Wait, that's two, right? So why the singular in the scripture? And then it says, as we develop our love for them, by keeping their commandments. See, there you go. Already, you yeah. violated the first. Yep. I mean, you, it, it's just incredible to me. Like, these teachers, the Mormon teachers, they, in what they're teaching, they hate this God. Hmm. 
if you don't affirm the oneness of God, <laughs> what, what are you affirming? What God are you talking of? <laughs> what are you speaking of? It's not this God. It's not the God Jesus is preaching because God says, what's the most important commandment? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yep. And Mark, who's documenting that, believes Jesus is that God. Yep, that's right. <laughs> so it, it's almost like he, there's one essence in three persons. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the, this God is the ultimate one in many. That's right. That's bussing, man. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. Chill. Yeah, chill. I, <laughs> That's not extra at all. That's no, just, no. That is just straight bussing. Absolutely. That Now, on this uh, passage, more specifically, I think it's really interesting. This, of course, this isn't just simply an academic debate, but this idea of which laws and which parts are heavy and light. I mean, the Old Testament's a big book, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, depending on, there's a little debate over the number, but rabbinic calculation, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you uh, prioritize the teaching, right? Why don't we start with Nahum 1-2 rather than, you know, Leviticus 19, eight, or sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and then Leviticus 19, 18? Well, once again, there's this debate um, in Jewish thought of how to prioritize the teaching or how do you summarize the teaching. So uh, the obvious example is the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. That's a form of it, right? And... Um, so what it does is it's it you 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 test it and this is just a form of debate. It's not always um, in terms of you know fighting. It, it could be just debate um, whether that's happening here or not. But it, it is interesting that he's focusing on love rather than on the more tangible regulations. Um, or just a system of competing rules. We have other attempts at this, right? So there, we have in rabbinic uh, materials uh, some who will latch on to 11 principles in Psalm 15 or 6 in Isaiah 33, 15, and 16, and so on and so forth. Uh, there's one who thought that Proverbs 3, 6 is a short text in which all the essential principles of the Torah depend, right? But it is, I think, interesting that for Jesus, it is one God, mm -hmm. love of him with all your heart. Everything else follows after that. Mm -hmm. It, The whole person... And then that, how that flows to the image bearers he's created in the form of whoever is near you. Yeah. And it, by the way, it's not just, a, this is something that the left will twist. They, they make abstract humanity like, oh yeah, I love humanity in general. Or right. I love, no, 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 it's your neighbor. Yep. It's, it's the person next to you. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody can love an abstraction of what humans should be. Mm-hmm. You know, this new socialist man or whatever, you know, uh, from the hellish nightmares of uh, Lenin. Uh, no, no. And then you actually see what Lenin does to his neighbor um, or commands done to his neighbor. Um, no, this is someone tangible next to you who was made in the image and likeness of God. Yeah. I'd also just like to bring in here some of the thoughts from the, the Apostle John. Um, I'm going to read this and then. I mean, we're already out of time, so I'll turn it over for okay. whatever last things you want to tie the bow on top for. But okay. uh, just just hear this from 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, so who are the people who truly love? It's those who've been born of God and who know God. Well, which God? Well, the God of the Bible. <laughs> Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So God's love was actually manifest to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Okay? That's vital to realize. As a person, you fail to love God. So in this is love, not that you've loved God, not that you have obeyed this commandment to the extent that's necessary for your salvation. It's impossible. You can't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's why God manifested love by sending his son into the world. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Which sins? Well, the sin that you have not loved God and loved your neighbor perfectly. So Jesus came to absorb the wrath that you deserved, the punishment that you deserved for your offenses against the holy God, for your lack of love against love toward him and love toward your neighbor. Jesus came, absorbed that so that you can be forgiven of your sin in him. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So don't forget the centrality of Jesus in all this. Uh, Jesus is love. And, uh, and, and that's the, the whole point. Even as he's teaching this to these lawyers, they ought to be realizing how far, far they fall short, and they ought to be looking to Jesus for salvation, uh, mm-hmm. not looking to you know, debate and try to come up with all their own brilliant or bright ideas, right? Right, not an example of salvation, but only Yahweh saves. And when we say Jesus Christ saves, it's because he is Yahweh incarnate. Yep. And uh, just really quick before the last thing, right? I love how R.T. France points out that, um, yes, the love of God expressed in Deuteronomy 6.5 rightly takes first place, but why why is it like unto it? Why does he he connect it so essentially to it? Mm-hmm. I love this. Um it is like 6.5, um, the, the second, not only in that it is equally important, but also in the formal sense that it uses the same verbal form, you are to love. Uh, so Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And more fundamentally, in that it equally insists that one's religious duty is focused outside oneself, not within, not all about me and my experiences, yeah. not all about, you know, what, avoiding toxic people so I can be the best my best me or whatever, it's about God and who he's made in recognizing our place, our subject place. Yeah. Indeed, if we're honored with the gift of faith, our slave place. Yeah. Um, That's right. Aimed at other people, right? Uh, this is it. And more fundamentally, in that it equally insists that one's religious duty is focused outside oneself. It might be possible to think even of love for God as a self-centered spiritual experience. But love for one's neighbor is inescapably practical and altruistic. Love for God is first, but the, um, the, the second great commandment is properly understood only when viewed within the context of the more fundamental demand of the first. But the first without the second leaves the demand of love insufficiently specified. I think that's well said. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we didn't have time to get into this, but Ballard... Uh, says this is the simple gospel. Mm-hmm. And of course, no, 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 no. Paul points out love as being the fulfillment of the gospel. No, the law. Notice these are commands. This is law. This is not the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so um, they miss that as well. 
sell, you know, law become the good news becomes about what you do, I guess. Um, all right. Now, because they skipped it, and to me, that's just so, it's so interesting. Um, and for those who haven't heard all along, sometimes they will address something and then just try to kind of like, well, it can't really mean this, or, well, Joseph Smith changed that, or, but we pay attention when they completely avoid it, mm-hmm. which they do. Uh, this this one we've been landing on, the two great uh, commandments, right, is the third, or the great commandment, is the third of three questions. We're, we're totally skipping the first, though we did talk about some of the material for it, politically mm-hmm. or whatever. Sadducees ask about the resurrection. I wanted to hit this again, yep. just because it's so central to their system, and this is such a devastating point to LDS theology. So I, I want people to really look at this. Now I'm going to go as quickly as I can, but if it, this, this section will really help if you have the text open. Matthew 22, 23 through 33. Now I'm just going to kind of give commentary here, right? So what's the question? Well, this is the Sadducees, right? So this is not the, the Pharisees, right? Something a little bit, they, these are more like the elite. Um, I mean, this is the priestly classes. They're connected to the temple, the aristocracy. Um, you know, whereas the zealots, the religion is absolutely political, and they want, you know, a Jewish nation again. Uh, you know, so they want the overthrow of Roman control, or Roman influence really is probably the accurate way to put it. Um, the Sadducees want to go to dinner with the, with the Romans, right? Um, and they... Uh, tended to be politically more conservative because, of course, they benefit (laughs) from the status quo. Um, They were suspicious of adding Scripture to the Pentateuch, so there's a canon issue, as we're going to see. And they, um, for one reason or another, do not believe in uh, the resurrection. So um, they tend to read these passages um, as metaphorically, metaphorical or something like that. Um, so the question, um, why the marriage one uh, is so interesting, is that this is really the question is about the resurrection. And they're trying to uh, do a reductio ad absurdum to expose the whole resurrection idea as ridiculous. So on the surface, the point about marriage is tangential to this point. So the, the Jesus response um, is first that they misunderstood the nature of resurrection life by assuming it's analogous to this present life. Hear me, especially if you were LDS, this should stand out. What if you look at Jesus's response to the, you know, okay, well, let's say a widow um, raise up, raise up offspring. By the way, that raise up is the word where we get resurrection from. So you kind of see that that echoes deliberate. Seven brothers, first married, died, no offspring, left a wife to his brother, and then they do seven different um, right uh, husbands. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So Jesus doesn't just respond to the question. He responds to the framing of the question, right? So he says his response is taking on the assumption that resurrection life is analogous to the life we have now. And then second, he takes on the underlying issue, whether there are scriptural grounds for belief in resurrection at all. Notice he does the haven't you read. Um, LDS, he doesn't say go pray, get your own answer. He doesn't say go look for personal revelation. He doesn't go say, hey, go listen to these guys who talk about, you know, Jesus being their buddy and that they have the power of Jesus, but who reject monotheism. <laughs> okay. Um, he, he is going to make a scriptural argument. 
So the text is one that they're going to obviously be familiar. It's one of the most famous passages of the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Old Testament, the books of Moses. Um, But the inference he draws is one where you might not expect it, which is interesting. Okay, so once again, 25 through 28, this is also an interesting point that R.T. France points out, that um, why it's a reductio ad absurdum, the idea of resurrection, is that, of course, the idea is, well, if they're married and they're not questioning the oneness of the marriage, and you spend eternity as the wife of seven men, um, the the assumption is polyandry. I mean, that's absolutely absurd. Uh, Keep in mind, uh, Joseph Smith practiced polyandry. Yep. Uh, in, with the name of the priesthood of supposedly the same God. But anyway, we, it's just kind of the assumption that no, Jesus doesn't dispute. Is, well, no, polyandry is going to be really great for the, you know, prophet I'm going to send in the 1830s. <clears throat> doesn't say it. Now, this is a significant pastoral issue uh, that I think is really um, sometimes um, undervalued, right? Uh, we believe in life after death, but what about people who have been married more than once? If what were successive marriages on earth become contemporaneous in heaven, what does that do to the nature of the marriage relationship? So um, this, is, this is a real interesting issue, actually. Um, you, even if the spirit in which it's asked is uh, questionable, it's actually a good question, and we shouldn't uh, neglect that. So Jesus' response is, first, you don't know the scriptures, right? And then he takes on their, their framework, their viewpoint, the presuppositions they bring to it, um, which results from not being really sufficiently open to scriptural truth. Um, it's interesting. He could have aimed at, brought up the Psalms. He could have brought up several passages, but he, he says, okay, he'll, he'll, he, okay, even assuming the five books of Moses, right? But because they see everything in terms of this world, if you, and if you know more about the Sadducees, they didn't just deny the resurrection. They, they were, um, this life is it, um, free will, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, and, they uh, were, on one hand, suspicious of the holiness movement that was the Pharisees, and, of course, any threat to their power. So the more we know about the Sadducees, the more this is interesting, right? Jesus is really calling into question their whole framing that sees everything in terms of this world. It does, um, and it, so if, you, if all you're coming to it is this kind of like, well, this imminent frame, then, of course, the answer is not going to make sense. Mm-hmm. This is very relevant to our time. Yeah. When we deal with people, uh, even if they claim to be religious, they often have a, f- a framing like these Sadducees. Yep. Um, now, he says, in the resurrection. Keep in mind, that's not an event. That's the state of life. You, it would, you could almost say in heaven, right? Or something like that. Um, since the question has been raised about marriage, it's on that aspect of heavenly life that Jesus' answer focuses. But the principle could be stated more broadly. This is R.T. France. It is a mistake to picture life in heaven as being simply an extrapolation of life on earth. Now, Mormonism does that and puts, you know, to the, you know, nth dimension, right? I mean, it's everything is this, like this, right? Even for the gods and their gods and their gods and their gods and their gods. Uh, Matter is eternal. There is no beginning nor end. So, but Jesus is challenging that. And I think that's interesting. Now, the power of God creates something different, right? Fitted for a life that's not temporary like this world where things change and people die, but eternal. And here's a key point for LDS theology. Sexual life is obviously affected by this since procreation belongs to the earthly, not to the heavenly, where there is no birth, growth, or death. Um, So marriage as the institution within which earthly procreation is set is therefore out of place. So, I mean, this is really strong language, right? 
um, if you're reading it. Um, so it's the, 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 the marriage rules, even those revealed by God, in some sense won't apply the same way or at all in this case, right? Um, because people in heaven will be like the angels who do not marry or procreate because they're eternal. Uh, by the way, there's going to be a lot of LDS people like, oh, we love the, the secret books. Like first, well, this is, the, by the way, that, that whole point about angels is also in First Enoch. It's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Now, here, so here, here's the problem. Multiple earthly marriages. And the response is solving the problem by declaring that the marriage relationship is a temporary earthly thing. Okay. Now, he's not saying love <laughs> is the issue. It's this marriage Bond. Now, having answered that specific question, he rebuts the framework scripturally, right? He cites Exodus 3.6. Now, what's interesting here, don't, and LDS people should not miss this. Don't miss this. Though the context is to Moses in a specific historical setting, he says to you because it's God speaking through scripture. It, I mean, this is so key in terms of Jesus' own view of Scripture. And yep. this is the God-man speaking. Yep. This is someone who can abrogate the food laws, like in Mark 7 or whatever. Mm-hmm. He has the authority to change. But what does he say? No, no, no. You, this, he spoke to you, Sadducees, here. And it, he implies that this relationship, this covenantal relationship with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and uh, Israel, who he's going to save, even though they don't deserve it, and he reminds them several times, I saved you because of me, not because of you. Um, He makes a linguistic point on the verb, but this is interesting. There's also this kind of theological point, right? If God is the source of life, he has a covenantal relationship with you, how can death be part of that, right? The argument is based on the nature of God, who God is, his relationship with his human followers, it, it, it's the covenant which he bind himself to them is too strong to be terminated by their death. It, so to be associated with the living God, the one God, the God who created all things, who is the who is our life, as Moses even teaches, Deuteronomy, I think, 30 or 31. It's to be taken beyond the temporary life of this world into a relationship which lasts as long as God lasts, which, of course, is forever. Yeah. And those with, this isn't Plato, by the way, <laughs> there's a lot of people who are like, well, it took Plato to get the immortality of soul. No, Jesus does not say, oh, but there's some Greek philosophers over here. We should take them. Sadducees, didn't you say? No, no. He says right here, right here in Exodus, yep. that this is, this is a relationship, and I am their life, and therefore it will not end in their death. Those with whom the living God identifies himself cannot be truly dead, and therefore must be alive with them after their earthly life is finished, right? So life after death is not an innovative theology. You don't even need the the prophets and the Psalms for this, although it is there. And by the way, there was a more recent book where Barterman tries to dispute this. It's kind of interesting. If we find uh, graves with personal belongings among the Vikings, what do we assume? When we saw, find King Tut's tomb and there's a bunch of personal belongings, what do we assume about Egyptian theology? Well, we do that in Israel, and we say, because Barterman just hates Christian theology, he wants to say it's not there in the Old Testament. Well, it is. It's in the Psalms, uh, for example. But here, Jesus is saying it's here in Exodus, mm-hmm. right? And finds its root in the essential nature of the living covenant-making God himself. God of the dead is not a title appropriate to the God revealed in the books of Moses. So I hope 
that people listening will read through. This is a very key passage. Yeah. It's the nature of who God is, the nature of the covenant, what scripture is. Um, I mean, I just, and of course, what does he say, right? Um, he says, if we're in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, David Ridges, we just went through it, and this is where I'm, this is all I got after this. Once again, in the, the actual LDS curriculum, they avoid it completely, right? And even cite talks where they talk about procreation being a godly thing, like Oaks says that. Well, David Ridges, of course, because he's doing a verse-by-verse commentary, he can avoid it. Right. And this is what he says under verse 28. This is the heading. Eternal marriage is preached here in these verses. Here is a major doctrinal point. Many religions use these next two verses to prove that there is no such thing as eternal marriage and family in the next life. On the contrary, the simple fact that the Sadducees asked the Savior in verse 28, whose wife she will be when they are all resurrected, is proof that the Savior had indeed preached marriage in the resurrection. What? <laughs> See the damage done to the text? Yep. In other words, eternal marriage. So he's saying the fact they're asking about this is proof that he taught eternal marriage, even though he says, for in the re- resurrection, uh, neither marry nor given in marriage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, a little weird. He how, keeps... Yeah. How do you make something so clear? So become unclear somehow. Right. Yeah. Um, and even on that verse 30, he... he apparently keeps going for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given a marriage i know i keep repeating that but like think about what that says i haven't even interpreted yet think about what it says this is what david ridges says refers to those who do not qualify for eternal marriage either in this life or in the post-mortal spirit world or during the millennium and he cites the polygamy passage dnc 132 where mm. joseph smith reveals polygamy and pressures Emma to accept his adultery. Okay, here again, uh, this is uh, Ridges. Um, uh, correct doctrine needs to be understood. So he, I mean, he's not even trying to temper it. He's bluffing. This is a bluff, right, in poker? You, you got a bad hand, right? Mm-hmm. You got a bluff, right? After everyone from this earth is resurrected, there will be no more eternal marriages performed for them. Even though you're like, well, if there's other worlds like this and people are progressing all the time, yeah. when is there ever a time when there aren't men progressing to become gods? And therefore, why would why would Jesus challenge the framework he does? Mm-hmm. Um, because such marriages have to be done by mortals for themselves. See that? So God couldn't do it. It has to be done by mortals for themselves or by mortals who serve as proxies for those who have died. And it's so funny for the people who seem to reject vicarious atonement, and mediate, I mean, all this stuff. Uh, they have this proxy thing all of a sudden. But once again, they say, well, agency, they have to accept it. So um, he cites a couple things we won't have to, we won't go into. And the last sentence I'll read Since there will be no mortals left on earth after the resurrection is completed, there would be no one left to serve as proxies for eternal marriages. That's how he deals with this. That's yep. literally, that's, and at least he tries to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope our, Christian listeners really take that to heart. This is a great passage. This is a great passage. And it's 
it's there's not a very easy escape hatch for them. Yeah, it's Jesus. He quotes scripture, speaking to you, all that stuff. Yep, I think it's important too to make make them deal with these sorts of passages. Absolutely, you know, don't don't let them do the scapegoat. Oh, we just really can't understand that. No, no, no. Yep, read it. Yep, like give, give me an interpretation. Yeah, you and know? why if they if we can't trust what Jesus says here, why do they trust what Jesus says? In the next section. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's just here that they, they play these games. Yep. Of course, they do play games. It's just not the same games, I right. guess, right? Because they'll be like, we'll love God, and but they're polytheists. So, yep. I don't know. For sure, yeah. for sure. All right. Well, we're wrapping it up on that note. So, yeah. next week, we're looking at the JST because all of the scriptures are not in our Bibles. Yeah. So, there you have it. See not, you then. Not dripping.